When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From Headstuff Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Derek O'Shea. And I'm very lucky and very glad to be joined by a special guest on the phone from Belfast. It's Claire Mitchell. Hi, Claire. Hey, Derek. How are you doing? Claire, why don't you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Well, I'm Claire Mitchell from Belfast. I guess I'm a writer now. I used to be an academic um, Queen's University in sociology. Now I'm a contributing editor for Slugger O'Till. Not sure whether that's a good or bad thing to say in public, <laughs> but for my sins, that's what I do. Tell us a bit more about Slugger O'Toole, because I think uh, there's a few of our listeners who might not be familiar with it, who might be interested. Um, it's the biggest northern website which um, writes about politics. It is pretty anarchic in how it works, in that it, there's no real editorial line. The, there's five of us who run it, and we all disagree fairly intensely with each other about most things. So it's a really interesting platform to work for, because there's real freedom to publish whatever you want, um, to, yeah, be controversial if you want to, and really encouraging dissenting views, which you might think in Northern Ireland is nuts, but we have (laughs) um, a really brilliant team of moderators who try behind the scenes to kind of, I don't know, help conversations along. And a lot of people associate Slug Road Hill with just Nordies tearing strips off each other, and it happens a lot. But there are some moments of real kind of beauty and coming together, you know, in a society where we don't really have many opportunities for an orange man to talk to a Republican, you know, and I don't know, it's a lovely platform for that sometimes. Sounds great. And Claire, the reason I've asked you to come on the show today is um, that there's been, um, that the past week has, has been a very interesting one in terms of the, there's been a bit of a stalemate in Northern Ireland for a while. Uh, since the last election, really. But then things kind of really came to a head last week. Yeah, and it was a bit of a surprise. Um, It certainly wasn't a surprise to the activists working Mm. on the issues of um, equal marriage and abortion. But I think they hadn't wanted to hype what was happening. There was a debate in Westminster where um, there were two amendments to the Northern Ireland Bill, which basically said that if we can't get our shit together by um, October in the talks and restore an assembly, that Westminster will take things out of our hands and introduce 
equal marriage legislation and also something on abortion, although that's less certain what that will be. So we've been here so many times before, you know, so many um, Westminster attempts, so many court cases, and like it's always ended in disappointment until now. So yeah, I was total feeling of euphoria during the week whenever these things finally passed. Thank to, thanks to um, yeah, really dedicated activists here in the North, mm. really clever ninja allies in Westminster who yes. were really always looking for ways to get these kind of amendments through, Stella Creasy, Connor McGinn, and yeah, so euphoria and now kind of tempered with slight mortification that we didn't do it ourselves. Um, mm. Although I don't think people on the ground here should be mortified because there's huge support for both of these issues. Between 68% and 76% of people here support equal marriage. Mm. And I think in the last survey, let me just look, 71% yeah. of the population agree with the women's right, women's right to choose. So... It's not that we're these mad theocrats and <laughs> Westminster had mm. to do a solid for us. It's just we had a political blockage here. So it's embarrassing, but de absolutely delighted about it. Um, there's a lot of details that need hammered out. I think the equal marriage might be fairly straightforward. Abortion, less so. So we'll yeah. have to see how that goes. So it's... Um, how it's an interesting story, I suppose, the way Northern Ireland ended up with different abortion laws to the mainland, to Britain, in that it just happened that, that the laws were passed in like one year before, I suppose, um, direct rule, wasn't it? This was 1967. Is that the, the UK legislation acted and that there was still a Northern Ireland yeah. Parliament then? Yeah. And there was such opposition to that here that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the, I suppose the, the the thing now, and and obviously the marriage equality is still something fairly recent in the United in in the rest of the United Kingdom and in the Republic of Ireland. So it's uh it'll be interesting to see how that that pans out. But the I get one of the things that's been especially interesting about how these um how these two kind of points have come to has come to pass is that if Stormont is re reformed, uh, is reassembled, um, that the DUP who who have a majority would be able to stop them technically, but this might involve uh, another uh, hot potato, another political hot potato, which would be the Irish Language Act. Yeah. <laughs> so Twitter is full of people saying, um, let's see who the DUP hit more now. <laughs> Irish <laughs> language speakers or um, um, reproductive rights campaigners. Um, yeah, uh, it's fascinating. I don't think that the DUP will give on Irish language rights because they've painted themselves into such a corner at the minute mm. to the point where about 80% of DUP supporters um, really strongly back their policy that there should be no Irish language act, a standalone act. And that's just intensified over time, Do you know, because everything is so crazy here, the fragility and of Brexit and everything. So I don't think the DUP are going to be able to agree an Irish Language Act. Um, and I don't think the Sinn Féin supporters would really be very happy with them if they went on a promise, you know, after October. They they maybe, if they did get the Irish Language Act and then had to get um, equal marriage and abortion through the Assembly. Equal marriage, I think, would pass, no problem through the Assembly. Well, mm. 
maybe not no problem, but <laughs> easily, well, you never can say here. But abortion is something that we are still incredibly divided about. And mm -hmm. if Sinn Féin feel that their voters feel strongly about reproductive rights, I don't know if that's the case in the North, then this is the only way that we're going to get um, this legislation through. And it's not the 1967 Act, which we're hopefully going to get. And it's not even legislation uh, as liberal, if you want to call that, in the, as in the mm -hmm. Republic of Ireland. At the minute, the, the Creasy Amendment just um, is about rape, incest, fatal fetal abnormalities. There's some kind of thing about the severe fetal abnormalities, but that's not defined. And there's something up around health of the woman. And that's the big one, obviously, if that... Um, gets included in the legislation that could be really transformative for us mm -hmm. um but the and there's another important part is that it'll free doctors up to actually talk to um people who are pregnant about mm -hmm. their options whereas before you know everybody would be almost scared to you know i've had friends the doctors can't say anything to them you know i can't comment can't comment and they're yeah. left having to sort out everything themselves. And the decriminalisation aspect is important. Then doctors won't be feeling they're going to jail or people taking pills, however they've sourced them, won't be feeling that they're in trouble criminally. So, um, yeah, all of that it is transformative. Like, it takes us hugely forward. But I think if that one bounced back to the Assembly in the future, we wouldn't even get that very limited form of reproductive autonomy that we're looking at now. Yeah. I think we're incapable of dealing with that, even though most people want it. Is And this is a funny thing in that the, possibly because of the first past the post system or maybe just other factors, it's um, when people in Northern Ireland go to vote, there's um there's an assumption that this, that the, this was in Westminster, there's going to be so, so many kind of people who will form a government and it's almost as if we're like, well, Will will the will a unionist party have leverage or not? And if they don't, I suppose, like like it, it's it's almost like it's never their fault if a hospital closes or if a tax goes up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's been the biggest um, get out of jail free card for politicians here. I don't think that the I think unionists the DUP having the balance of power has that happened before. Well, in Westminster? I, it happened in the nineties when uh, John Major was prime minister. Then there was okay, a yeah. there was there was a kind of a pan unionist kind of a block that kind of just gave him a uh, gave him the the majority he needed, but at a, at a terrible cost. And yeah, I think we might have kind of turned um, Westminster now. <laughs> mm. I think there's a, a group of Brexiteers and precious union kind of people who would. <laughs> Um, have the DUPs back. But if you look at the results for the Conservative Party members, do you know, would they rather have Brexit or the Union? <laughs> They'd rather have Brexit. I think um, the worm has turned and um, mm -hmm. unionism amongst some groups is starting to be seen as a, a huge liability, something to kind of... I imagine so. it off ASAP. And, like, it's, it's something that comes up a lot. I know in... Um... I know in Ireland we we we'd often remark that say there's not not an awful lot of awareness of kind of a of kind of Irish issues or even basic facts about Ireland much, but it's I think that mul that gets multiplied a lot in Northern Ireland. There's so little is actually understood. The fact that Northern Ireland is obviously being being part of the UK, you'd expect a certain uh, a certain amount of knowledge, but 
I'm sure you've tried to use Northern Sterling in London. <laughs> yes, I have been protesting loudly in English shops for many years. <laughs> it's it's the funniest thing, I suppose, when you do hand a and hand a, a a ten pound note that, and a, a vending machine will take it. Like you, you'll get more compassion, understanding from a Coke machine. <laughs> is that right? I'm in <laughs> Scotland. They get it. <laughs> oh yeah. And uh, why is that? We're just not on their radar. I mean, Naomi and Tim did a brilliant Irish Passport podcast episode about the knowledge gap, about how just Irish history and even the northern part is just not on the radar um, of curriculums, of news coverage, of anything really. It's continually frustrating and sometimes really hilarious how little, um, yeah, British society seems to know about the North or get us. <laughs> Did you see the cartoon this week? I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was, it had a rainbow and leprechauns and yes. Brexit as, <laughs> maybe you can explain what that cartoon was. It was legendary misunderstanding of everything. Yeah, they had Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt as leprechauns and they had they were trying to give a, a pot of gold that represented the the backstop away and it was and I think Dara Breen pointed out uh, leprechauns don't give people pots of gold, they hide pots of gold. <laughs> and as well as the other things, but it's it's um yeah, it, it's been a bit of an adventure and uh, like in terms of up there now in, in Belfast now, I mean, the, do backstop-related conversations come up much when you're out talking to people, uh, picking up kids, getting a, getting a, getting a cup of coffee? There's people, like it's, there must be an awful lot of, I guess, exhaustion and frustration. I think we're well past the fatigue stage <laughs> here at the minute into slightly hysterical territory when <laughs> you don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, yeah, of course it comes up. I mean, not necessarily at the school gate, but amongst friends and, you know, yourself, how strong the support is here for mm. not having a hard Brexit and a hard border. And the DP, even this week, we're talking about um, the, how the economy is going to take a hit. So I think, you know, we're largely agreed that this is a really kamikaze move. Some people are ready to hit the big red button, right? Just have <laughs> Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Just let's roll with it. Let him wreck it. Um, just see what happens. Um, people trying to feed their kids would maybe have a <laughs> more cautious approach to things because, you know, it feels so powerless and helpless to affect what's going on at Westminster. Yet all of this stuff, I mean, it affects our family business which we um, mostly work over the border it affects our benefit system it affects skill funding you know bringing in our own flipping pencils and rubbers and you know whatever yeah. it, it, it's funny and I am a Protestant who wants Irish unity so I'm keen to you know start that process but then you know the socialist in me mm. is oh my goodness how much devastation are we going to do if we do it this way, you yeah. know, in the next year or two. And I suppose this is the thing that, that, that a lot of people now are thinking that the, because there's um, 
because people there's people in in England who are happy to sacrifice the union to deliver Brexit, mm-hmm. and there's concerns that there's a a massive cleavage between what the GUP are supporting and what the people in people in Northern Ireland actually want in terms of EU membership, in terms of backstops, in terms of um, uh, where the, the kind of place they want to live, and it, this is it's it's changed the 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 tone in conversations about unity and. James Nisbet, the actor, recently used an expression, a, a, a new union of Ireland. So he, he deliberately didn't use the word United Ireland because it has connotations, yeah. but he said a, a new union of Ireland. And it's like something I was thinking myself was that rather than talking about the the Republic of Ireland absorbing the North, it'd, it'd be more like a second republic or something different than what, what than the than the than the two states that went before. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to try and think of new words and a new language around it. Maybe there's something from Irish that we could borrow. Mm. Um, I think it's quite healing because I don't think that most Protestants here and even a lot of Unionists hate the Irish language per se or even hate the idea of unity per se because we kind of know it's in the cards what's happening with Brexit with Scotland with demographics you know Mm. Um, but there's something that happens to some unionist brains whenever they hear the word unity or Irish language it's just some synapse flicks and all they hear is Sinn Féin you know (laughs) it's kind of like a a proxy for Mm. that which is really sad because um the Irish language is such a big part of our Protestant histories and these things don't need to be, I think, the the kind of bogeyman that, um, that unionists are currently painting them as. I think yeah. a lot of ground is given way, though. There are a lot of discussions happening amongst Protestants and amongst unionists, mm. um, if not in the leadership, about what Irish unity um, could mean. There's a lot of kind of loosening up of terminology and opening of minds and discussion of the NHS and the economy. And I think that's how we're going to get there. And as, as I was doing some, uh, as doing some research recently on, I suppose, uh, on Protestantism and the Irish language and Queen Elizabeth I, not the, not the current one, the Queen Elizabeth I actually uh, yeah. sp- sponsored the, she personally financed the first the translation of the New Testament into Irish in 1602. Really? And the, the, book of, the Book of Common Prayer was translated into Irish in 1608, just a couple of years later. So while, mm-hmm. while the Catholic Church is still using Latin or, or not, and um, it, the actual, the Church of Ireland went, was going ahead and actually promoting the Irish language. Yeah, and even in um, Ireland and the north of Ireland in the late 19th century, Anglican and Presbyterian um, churches were encouraging their clergy to do more sermons in Irish and kind of reach out because that was um, what people could relate to, Protestants, Mm. you know. And I find um, the Irish language in my own history recently, I've always had a real kind of affinity for like how... The Irish language sounds and I always have radio fault on and I'm kind of always hoping to kind of learn it through mm. osmosis, you know, um, because it's it, it feels like a, a ghost limb, something that has kind of been inaccessible yeah. for Ulster Protestants. And, you know, that's so recent uh, being erased after partition and especially then during the Troubles. But, you know, if any of us really scratch a little bit and dig a little deeper into our family histories. Um, it's there. 
I mean, mm. I find my Irish language speakers living on the Shankill Road um, in the 1901 census. There's loads of kids, loads of families um, who have Irish down as their first language. Um, some of them only speak Irish. And mm. they were working class and they were weavers, um, riveters, you know, house painters. Couldn't be a more kind of... Ulster Protestant history. One of them even signed the Ulster League and Covenant, you know, so these things weren't mutually exclusive back then. But I suppose over time, maybe I suppose starting with the Covenant and then Home Rule and Partition, the Irish language kind of became suppressed and was seen as a political threat. And then Protestants, kinda, it became awkward, you know, it kind of became mm. disremembered. And I think um, it would be, I think that is a reframing that needs to happen within yeah. unionist politics and the leadership. Because as long as people are seeing Irish language, oh, shinners, you know, <laughs> we're not going to get anywhere. But um, I think the, on the ground here in the North, we've been brilliant recently with lots of independent Irish language activist groups with political parties like the Green Party, Alliance, People for Profit getting on board with the Irish Language Act with the kind of whole new Protestant rediscovery of the language. So if we can get to a point where it's a plural thing, you know, where it belongs to everybody, I think all of that is being set up on the ground. And what we really need now is just a unionist leader with the balls hmm. to to own that and then to buy into it and say it's not for Sinn Féin, it's for everybody, you know? Yeah. And hopefully we're not too far away from that. Um, it feels like we're forever away, but we've seen how quickly this week things can change. And yeah. maybe somebody will bring it through the back door at Westminster, who knows? Yeah, that's, it's, it's, sometimes that's how these things happen. They could go through in technicalities and in small print. But it's uh, obviously we pref people prefer, you know, a nice heroic kind of a barnstorming speech leading to a big vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, a played Crimea MP has spoken in favour of an Irish language act before. So my eyes would be looking to maybe the Scottish nationalists and, and, and to Wales just to see, yeah. you know, while we're in a roll. Nothing else is happening if we could break a few of those deadlocks. <laughs> some people find, some purists find that like really annoying or not annoying, wrong that we're getting this kind of legislation through a British parliament. Mm. But I think most people here are just lads we need it. <laughs> mm. And especially, you know, the case of equal marriage, women's rights, a bodily autonomy, you know, can't let mm. kids and teenagers and people be suffering if you can get this stuff through, you know take it any which way it comes hmm. well i suppose yeah, that the business of politics is full of contradictions like that you mentioned there the uh, the solemn league and covenant the uh and, and did you say there was irish names in that i don't know because a lot of i mean my irish language people were called hmm. gibney and you can does that mean a lock of hair gibney something yeah that's right yeah so and i, I don't know what their literacy was like, that name just kept changing and changing and each kind of record, marriage cert or whatever that I could find. They went through about four or five permutations of it and names became anglicised. So I don't know. I haven't looked for Irish names in the Sun League and Covenant. I'll go and explore. But I mm -hmm. do know that people who were speaking Irish can mm -hmm. sign them because 
you know, they were in my family. And funny, I actually found an original copy of the Solemn League and Covenant oh. um, the other day in my house, in my attic. All family members, if they're clearing out their house, they just dump their old suitcases here. And do you know what I find it inside? Oh. It was an Irish, my granny was a festival dancer, Irish festival dancer, and it was in a Gaelic, the Society for the Preservation of the Irish Language from the late 19th century, Solemn League and Covenant, you know, a dancing tunes book, tucked <laughs> inside. So it really like, that, tells yeah. you so much about how mixed and intermingled our, our histories and our families and, and everything was, you know, before the worm turned. This is the thing and... Sorry. <laughs> and I was just going to say, it's it never went away, that mingling. Mm. You know, it's just how we present it now and how you hear about it on the news and it doesn't make headlines. But, you know, I went to the 12th, for example, last year with my kids. It's not really my thing, but we wanted to see one of the dads from school who was leading the band with his big drum. And he's married to a Catholic woman and all our kids go to Catholic school together. Do you know, so all of this kind of lived reality is and, and mixing and mingling is, is here on the ground. It just is not reflected in our political deadlock. And it's really sad, the issues that get drawn into that then. It is. It really is. And I know that, that that's there's, there's plenty of stories, even if you think the look at the very the, the different kinds of surnames in, in, in politicians and in, in other activists. And there's clearly there's always been intermingling and maybe even more so than there has been in um in parts of England where the where one school is producing all these prime ministers. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But uh so my wife is from Ballycastle up in Antrim. Oh, is she? She, good. she is indeed. And I often go to the Lammas Fair. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And there is a local kind of um, artisanal candy called Yellow Man, which is often oh, served lo- along with dulse, which is a kind of seaweed. But yeah, a far bouille is the Irish word for an orangeman, which technically translated to the Yellow Man. No way. Love it. <laughs> I, I wonder, are, are those two things linked? Well, Yellow Man is kind of a really sugar, sickly honeycomb yeah. that you make with bicarb of soda and bash up with a hammer. So I don't know <laughs> what kind of linkages we can make there. Um, <laughs> but uh, It's interesting to consider, though, yeah. Sure, I guess we'll have to look into that more and see more stuff about that. But the... Um, and so um, you, you mentioned there your kind of your, own, your your family's history of the Irish language. And before we wrap up, uh, I do like to ask our guests what their favourite Irish word is. Well, I like the word Sean Van Vocht because it makes me laugh greatly. I took my kids to Linda Irvine's Irish language family classes down in the East Belfast Mission this year. And they like to call me a Sean Van Vocht every day and then piss themselves laughing at me <laughs> because they know it winds me up. So that's a word that I'm really fond of. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> there's some jokers. Sounds, sounds like they're a great, <laughs> a great pa- bunch of kids. <laughs> Excellent. So, so Claire, we're all going to watch the the developments in the North and Westminster with great interest over the next few weeks. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So, until the next time, it's a slon from me. Oh, and slon from me. <laughs> Catch you then. <laughs> This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
And if you need to swear, there's no problem. Brian can bleep it or leave oh. it in. <laughs> I love swearing. Thank you. I'll try not to, but it's okay. a big ask. 